for those who haven't already, if you still have kiddos in our midst, doesn't look like there's many, go ahead and, and escort them downstairs. Um, also, I'd encourage you that if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that you'd please go ahead and grab one in the table in the back uh, where Anton and, and Kaivo are back there. There's a, a handful of Bibles. Um, and it's very profitable for us to have the Word of God in front of us as we study and learn from it this morning. Also, if, if you didn't bring a Bible with you and you need a new copy, we would encourage you to please go ahead and take one of those uh, soft cover Bibles with you. We know and our hope is that by having a copy of God's Word, you would spend time knowing and subsequently loving the Lord through His living and enduring Word. There is nothing that can transform us other than the Word of God. So this morning, we will be continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes, looking at chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. The book of Ecclesiastes, in between the book of Proverbs and the book of the Song of Solomon, is wisdom literature. Written by King Solomon, the book follows the wisdom of Proverbs by questioning and proclaiming the vanity of wisdom and works. The entirety of the text of Ecclesiastes is investigating and revealing that works and wisdom, what works and wisdom cannot do, and in turn pointing toward the gospel. The final work and wisdom of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to atone for our sins and proclaim victory over death. As we look at these set of verses in Ecclesiastes this morning, we will see that rugged individualism, greed, discontent, pride, material wealth, and the pursuit of fame are foolish and futile. On the contrary, the gifts of companionship, community, and humility are wise living. Both foolishness and wisdom, however, cannot prevent death and therefore our vanity, calling us to seek the giver and not the gifts for our joy and salvation. This time, let's go ahead and, and open our Bibles then to Ecclesiastes, reading chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. 
Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. As we look at this set of verses, we can break them up into three subsets of teaching and understanding. In verses 7 and 8, we see the foolishness of independence. We have an anecdote of a toiling independent explaining the foolishness and futility of individualism, greed, and discontent. In verses 9 through 12, we see the wisdom of community. We have a a proverb here explaining the wisdom of companionship with three supporting illustrations and a connection to community. And in verses 13 through 16, we see the vanity of both. Tied together with this conclusive antidote of a rags-to-riches king, it shows both the wisdom of humility in his younger years and the foolishness and futility of pride, material wealth later in life, and the vain pursuit of fame. Like the king's life, we can see that fame, foolishness, and even the gift of wisdom are all vanity ending in death, pointing us to seek the giver and not the gift for our salvation and joy. With that, let's begin to look at this first section, verses 7 and 8, and the understanding of the foolishness and futility of rugged individualism, greed, and discontent. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? As I imagined this man who's in this story, who's in this anecdote, my mind brought up Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. And for those that were wondering, my mind's eye actually pictured the Donald Duck Scrooge, not the one that we see in the the actual movie or play. (laughs) And as you recall, Scrooge was a lonely miser who was singularly focused and never content with his riches. So focused on his work and fortune, he wouldn't take or allow his employee with a family to take off Christmas. He dismissed and despised spending time with his own sister and nephew. And although he was accumulating his fortune, he chose to have no one to share it with. When we look at this text and see that it points out no son or brother, it is pointing to the fact that there here are no heirs just like Scrooge, to his accumulated fortune. In this anecdote and in Scrooge's life, the tunnel vision for work and riches puts a strain on any and all relationships portrayed in this story or in A Christmas Carol. Now, although I thought of and pictured Ebenezer Scrooge as Donald Duck look. As Ebenezer Scrooge as Donald Duck, when I thought of this antidote, at first glance, most of us may struggle to associate or identify ourselves with this Scrooge-like character. 
I care about others, we might say. Not singularly focused on accumulating riches, we pander. But if we really examine and ask the Lord to reveal the truth to us, we may ask, are there temporary things we are placing before the people the Lord has placed around us? Are there temporary things we are placing before the people that the Lord has placed around us. In an era and culture of being self-made, striving and being whatever you put your mind to, we can find ourselves in tunnel vision mode. In fact, the world would advise us that that tunnel mode is wisdom, incorrectly, Set goals, the world says. Find what you're achieving and go for it. Put a singular focus to where you want to be. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's a fitness goal or a financial goal. Or maybe it's a home project that you really just need to get done by this deadline that you've established for yourself. Now, don't hear me incorrectly. These things of themselves aren't bad. The gift of using our mind and our body to achieve something at work, recognizing that we should care for our body and manage our finances well, they aren't bad things. But folks, as we should know, those pursuits we spend so much thought and energy and effort towards make horrible gods. And much like the individual in these verses, our pursuit of those things can quickly allow us to fall in the trap of being continually discontent. To never be satisfied in these pursuits. One goal leads to another. Leads to another. Leads to another. Leads to another. Where is the end? as we continue to grasp for something that ultimately will not satisfy. And so the text provides the question, for whom am I toiling? For whom am I toiling? With this question, the preacher begins to point towards something better than rugged individualism and pursuits that often lead to greed and discontent. We see a shift here toward the wisdom of being others-focused. The wisdom of humble companionship and connection with others. We start to see a shift toward how Paul encouraged the Philippians in his letter to them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We are made in the image of God. Through Jesus, we can see and seek humility and are called to see others as more significant than ourselves. We are called to look towards the interest of others, to humbly lay down our lives for those the Lord has placed around us. I'll admit this is something that I, like the rest of us, struggle with. As a strong-willed personality, a type A go-getter, I can't help but keep a long list of things I want to accomplish. My schedule can't be full enough. and I can easily find myself jumping from task to task, planned item to planned item, focused solely on productivity and how many things can get checked off the list. I can find singular satisfaction and incorrectly place my identity in what and how many things I get done in a day. Like the toiling independent in verses 7 and 8, I don't stop the toil to look around and see the son or brother around me. I don't look beyond myself to see the interest of others. But I take heart that the Lord is transforming me. Maybe it's the introduction of our boys to our lives over the last couple of years or a commitment to relationships, discipleship relationships with men in our church. But over the last few years, the Lord has really been hitting me over the head with the idea of relationship over task. That any and all relationships I have are far more important and lasting than the tasks and activities in front of me. Surely, those tasks can seem important, but I don't get back the precious time with my children as they grow. Sure, I'd love to get a couple more things done most evenings, but he's called me to make it a priority to spend time praying with, studying the Word of God, and speaking the truth of the gospel into someone else's life situation in discipleship a couple days a week. The truth is, though, I do a horrible job with it. Right? That try as I might, the Lord is who needs to transform me. Although I'm trying to find a filter that asks, Am I, is, is this activity that I'm doing drawing me closer to someone around me? Or is it encouraging isolation? I still must fall on my knees and ask God to help me. I continue to pray that the Lord continues to challenge and work on me to submit to him. to See the needs of those around me with his vision and not my own selfish ambitions. Buffalo City Church, I pray that He continues to challenge and unify our church family in the same way. That we would be others focused. That our vision would be that Christ is displayed. That we would know and focus 
on our Savior, Christ Jesus. So in verses 7 and 8, we see the foolishness of rugged individualism, greed, and discontent, which leads to the question, for whom am I toiling? This leads then to the proverb, the beginning of the wisdom in this text from verse 9. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their, for their toil. And as we continue, we see three illustrations to explain the benefits of companionship. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep, to keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Two are better than one, that if he falls, someone is there to pick him up. Two are better than one in that there is warmth that one person cannot provide. Two are better than one in that there provides strength and security that one does not. Now, Solomon's context here for all three examples is with respect to people traveling in the Middle East. Traveling, especially in the evening and dark of night to avoid the midday heat, was a dangerous endeavor. Pits and ravines lined the trails, and individual travelers who, fought, who fell could literally be in a world of hurt. The wise traveler had another to hold on to, to call out for help when they stumbled to help them carry on if injured. Two is better than one. When the coolness of night set upon a weary traveler sleeping outdoors without sleeping bags and blankets, similar to what we saw when Jacob flew Esau's fury and slept outdoors with the stone for a pillow, the wise traveler had another to lie with, sharing their cloaks and warmth of their bodies. Two is better than one. Finally, we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, where a man was beaten and robbed and left to die on the side of the road. There were thieves ready and willing to take any and all belongings of a lonesome traveler. However, the same thief would think twice and avoid an attack on a couple or group of travelers, knowing that two would be much harder to overtake. Two is better than one. Now, for us, this contextual understanding and application may look different. I don't find most of us enjoying the treacherous trails of the Middle East too often. However, the, the wisdom of this proverb remains. If one falls, the other is there to pick them up, can relate to how we can be there for someone in a difficult time. Caring companion is ready to bind the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounds of life. A wider context of 
keeping warm is the comfort that another can provide through a warm smile, a warm embrace, or the warmth of inviting discussion or encouragement on something that is burdening us or something that we're struggling with. Finally, with an attacker who may prevail against one who is alone, but two will withstand him, we see strength and security in numbers. Whether that be physical, such as the wisdom of women not walking alone in the dark on a college campus, or the mental in the strength and security that comes from having other like-minded people around us when dissenting opinions or worldviews are approached in conversation. There truly is strength and security in companionship. And besides this set of verses in Ecclesiastes, we know the wisdom of companionship in other ways. It's pretty simple to know that we were made to be communal beings, to desire to seek companionship. Marriages, friendships, and other close relationships are vital to our identity and well-being. In fact, even the world acknowledges the desire and need for companionship. The greatest punishment we have in prison systems across the world is solitary confinement. Subjecting people who've done wrong to extended periods of no outside contact, knowing that it can be the greatest punishment for us as communal beings. To know our created identity as communal, we have to look no further than Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where the Lord proclaims man's need for companionship. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And despite this identity, this recognition that we need companionship, we sometimes find ourselves isolated. Our sinful nature pulls away from true companionship. We may, seek to, we may struggle to seek and acknowledge that our marriages and our close friendships, our discipleship relationships should provide and allow for picking each other up when we fall, providing warmth and comfort in times of trial and difficulty, and safety and security against detractors and enemies. This wisdom of companionship encourages us to ask ourselves and to ask God to help us to be willing to seek and deliver on opportunities for companions. As we turn back to the text, then, we see a final notation in this section. The proverbial marriage unity verse. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, looking at this previous set of verses, we may ask ourselves, why does the preacher not reference a twofold cord? You started with the folly of individualism, moved towards two being better than one, and now we jump to three? 
Now, within the marriage context that we consistently see this verse applied, this verse is thought to represent God as the third strand in this cord. And while that interpretation may work in our current context through Christ Jesus, we could see maybe where King Solomon actually allows this progression to be towards both family and community. The progression could and should continue beyond three further and further and further. The unified companionship of two, marriage or close friendship, is better than one. The unified connection of three, a family with children or the church, is better than two. Here at Buffalo City Church, we've consistently acknowledged that the family unit is the basis and foundation of the local church. It should be the cord that is not quickly broken. We therefore can see the local church as an extension of strong, Christ-centered families. As a cord not quickly broken. And similar to the interpretation of this verse in the marriage context with Christ as the third strand, we know from our study in 1 Corinthians that true unity can only be found through Christ Jesus. We also see it in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. As the church, we are companions united by more than just picking each other up, keeping each other warm and safe, but we are one of another united in Christ Jesus. The church is a threefold cord not easily broken. So we've seen foolishness and futility of rugged individualism, greed and discontent in the wisdom of companionship and a connection to community in the local church. And so now we hit the home stretch and see this set of verses fully connected through an antidote of the rags to riches king in verses 13 through 16. This story shows both the wisdom of humility in his younger years and the foolishness and futility of pride, material wealth, and the fleeting pursuit of fame later in life. It ultimately leads, ultimately leads us to an understanding of the vanity of both foolishness and wisdom with the implication that we must look to the giver in Christ Jesus and not the gift of wisdom for our salvation and joy. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. 
Similar to verses 9 through 12, this section starts with a proverb or a piece of wisdom. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. The subject of this story came from nothing, poor and imprisoned, but still rose to become king. He started wise and humble like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but then he fell victim to pride, pursuit of the crown and its glory. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. However, this position, this fame, this temporary glory sees an end. In verse 16, those who come after him will not Rejoice in him. As with most fame and positions of power here under the sun, by nature the rain is fleeting. Even the longest rain outside of God himself is subject to eventually fall and fade. It is subject to death. The king cannot escape the reality of coming from the dust, and to the dust he will return. So we see then, concluding in verse 16, surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. It's provided by Derek Kidner in the message of Ecclesiastes. The king in verses 13 through 16 has reached a pinnacle of human glory, only to be stranded there. It is yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievements. So, we see foolishness of rugged individualism, greed and discontent at the beginning. We see foolishness of pride, material wealth, and fame in this closing antidote in verses 13 through 16. In between, we have the wisdom of companionship and community. And in our last story, the wisdom of humility. It might be natural then to ask ourselves, is the takeaway here then that we should strive, that we should work towards the wisdom of companionship, community, and humility? As a chief aim, are we to flee from foolishness and pursue wisdom? Unfortunately, I think that sells our Creator short. I think that finds its aim in worshiping the gifts instead of pursuing and worshiping the giver. If we leave here this morning looking to find our satisfaction in fleeing foolishness or pursuing wisdom, we've missed the point. We've missed the gospel message staring us in the face that under the sun, while we live here on this earth, both foolishness and wisdom are vanity. The only thing which is not vanity is accepting and living our lives in light of the gospel. The truth that while we were still sinners, 
Christ humbled himself to become man, lived a perfect life, and was crucified to atone for our sins and provide us eternal life. We rejoice that he rose from the grave to rule and reign at the Father's right hand, and that if we put our faith and trust in him and him alone and what he has accomplished, we may live and enjoy him forever in eternity. The answer to avoiding vanity, as the preacher has and will continue investigating throughout Ecclesiastes, is to seek the truth of the gospel. To truly seek the Lord Jesus Christ in word and deed. To trust in him and his continued faithfulness. To accept the gift and the truth of salvation which was provided in his death, burial, and resurrection. And ultimately, in that we will see and know the giver and not the gift will provide our salvation and joy. In conclusion, I think this text is asking us to consider a couple different questions. First, what task or activity am I seeking above a relationship with the Lord? Am I singularly focused on something for myself that is not allowing me to see the value, importance, the value, importance, hurt, and needs of those around me? Am I looking for something in front of me and not seeing the people around me? To what rugged individualism or pursuit in my life can be given up to rely on, provide for, allow myself to be needed by someone in my midst? Is there something that we need to set aside to focus on someone around us? And third, how can I seek Christ to reveal the wisdom of companionship and community? Is there opportunity that the Lord is revealing to build companionship and connection in our lives? Is there companionship that's right here next to us that we're not focused enough on? Are we not finding companionship in our marriage? Are we not finding companionship and connection to our children and our parenting? Are we not finding companionship and connection in our church family, our community group, or, or someone in our midst? By spending time in his word in discipleship relationships and connections with other believers, by spending time in personal prayer and reflection, we need to ask the Lord to reveal the answers to these questions for us. Let's not make our ultimate goal wise living or even fleeing foolishness. While these are good things, they are still vanity because they reside under the sun. Rather, make your ultimate goal to know and love the giver and not only his gifts. 
Gifts are good. I can only offer short-term joy and satisfaction. The giver is better. He offers satisfaction and joy that never ends. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your word this morning. Lord God, thank you for the reminder that you are the only thing which is not vanity. That although you have provided the gift of wisdom and the gift of work, we must keep the gift in perspective of the gift that we have in you, the giver. The gift giver, the saving grace, that who has provided salvation from our sin. Lord God, please allow us to see your guidance in your word this morning. Lord God, thank you that you have provided an escape from vanity. That although our time, un, although our time under the sun is but a vapor, you have given us eternal life through faith, faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would continue to consider the gifts in our lives and ask you to help them put them in the proper place. Lord God, whether that's the gift of marriage and companionship, the gift of community, the gift of struggle and challenge and difficulty which humbles our heart and souls, Lord God, allow us to continually bow to you and thank you for who you are. Lord God, I pray that we have been transformed by your word this morning. Lord God, that your truth rings true in our heart beyond this place. Lord God, that we would spring forth from here just excited for, for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord God, excited to explore who you are and the gifts that you've provided to us. Lord God, allow us to leave this place hanging on the truth of your word. Lord God, as we end in song this morning, Lord God, I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts. Lord God, allow us to turn from our sin and to turn from you. Lord God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.